Hi everyone, welcome to the Idiots Podcast, that's Infectious Disease Insight of Two Specialists. I'm James, that's Callum, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the editing come to discontinue the Tezo sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum, how's it going? Feeling a bit listless. Listeriousless. Listeriousless. By any chance. Yes, listeriousless. <laughs> that, was, that was a bad one. That was a weak one. Maybe it we'll really was. Out. I have no idea. I really should plan these and I never really think about it. You really should. You know, I put a lot of work into this. Uh, I put, yeah, you do the the pre-work and I do the post-work. And I think probably works out about even. What are we talking about today? Listeria. Or more precisely, we're mopping up our non-branching gram-positive bacilli. So we covered bacillus and we covered carinibacterium. Uh, now we're going to cover Listeria, Lactobacillus, and Erysipelophrix, which you may remember from an earlier episode I couldn't pronounce. <laughs> but how times have changed, Callum, haven't they? Yes, um, yes, that's right. And you might be thinking, why why these five? Again, uh, they're the five that are mentioned in the Oxford Handbook, and therefore the ones that I wrote down. And there are other non-branching gram-positive bacilli, and I have not learned about them. And I've got to now consultant level without knowing about them. So I guess you don't need to know. And you can look them up if you ever come across them in your clinical practice. I'm not sure I'm endorsing that statement. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're chatting this last few weeks about non-branching GPBs. What are the branching ones? They are nocardia and actinomyces, and we will be covering them in the next podcast episode. So let's talk first about Listeria, which is by far the most important of the three genuses that we're going to mention. And then we'll talk about lactobacillus and erysipelothrix uh, towards the end. Uh, so Listeria. So for each organism, we'll take you through the site, uh, risk factors, the clinical syndromes it causes, the laboratory ID, and then the treatment for it. Yeah, so Listeria, Listeria's. Uh, a genus with only one species in it that affects humans, that's monocytogenous. Uh, Callum, where is it found? It's widespread in the environment. It's all around us. And the, the mode by which humans generally become infected is contamination through foodstuffs. And generally speaking, this is related to Listeria's, you might say, special ability. Uh, so it's good at surviving in a colder environment than many bacteria. For example, uh, typical foods include, um, you know, cooked meat products, cooked fish products, soft cheeses or blue veined cheeses, patty. Another classic one is pre-prepared like sandwiches, salads. These things that are kept in the fridge. So it's all around us, and there are infrequently, but it does occur in UK and uh, globally much more common outbreaks related to certain batches. So you might see uh, media reports of, you know, contaminated sandwich chain withdrawn after. Listeria outbreak. Yeah, or, or even just Listeria uh, cultured, uh, if, yeah. if there's monitoring going afoot. Yeah, yeah so from, from that, that side, it's something that is uh, monitored and it's part of food standards. So uh, there'll be screening and the Food Standards Agency will, will undertake that. And there's various guidelines on that which give cutoffs. So it's not, you mustn't have zero uh, Listeria in your food. And the standards actually, interestingly, are stricter on hospital food. 
Not sure if that has any reflection on the quality of hospital food, but, you know, say you get a sandwich as a inpatient on a ward, uh, you can be more confident that there's not listeria in it. Uh, so that's a good thing. Yes, it's probably the one good thing you could say about a hospital sandwich. Um, <laughs> yes, that's right. And then the, the other thing that we're recognising is that there is uh, GI carriage in humans as well of listeria. So about 5 to 10% of humans' GI tracts contain listeria also. Uh, if you sample them. And then in terms of risk factors for who would get, you know, infected actively with listeriosis, that would be uh, extremes of AIDS, so neonates and the elderly, the immunocompromised, obviously, and uh, pregnant women. And this is the underlying reason for quite a lot of advice given to pregnant women to avoid things like soft cheeses, raw milk, unpasteurized products, anything that would give listeria a chance to to get them uh, essentially and that's because it's associated with you know not just illness but also miscarriages uh, as well so it's not generally more serious for you know most of the time people actually get exposed to listeria and we're we're probably exposed to listeria a lot may not cause no symptoms or might get mild gastrointestinal upset but the problem when you're pregnant is that it can cross the placenta and cause infection in the in the neonate so it, it could be even go as a cause of infant death. You can also get infection from close contact with farm animals, especially sheep and cows that are giving birth. So because mm. you've got that the placenta, if they are if they've got listeria, then it could be transmitted in that way. And in terms of what clinical syndromes it causes, the cause that I've had the most contact with would be meningitis, particularly in older patients, particularly in alcoholic uh, older patients uh, as well. But it can also cause endocarditis in neonates that tend to cause generalized sepsis. And in pregnant women, uh, as we said, it causes a, it can cause like a, all of this other stuff, but it can cause a flu-like illness as well. But that increases your your risk of miscarriage and the, the fetal loss rate is about 25% of all, all pregnant cases. So, you know, one in four is not to be sniffed at. If you get uh, generalized sepsis with uh, listeria, your mortality is about a quarter uh, for you yourself. Yeah, yep. Which is potentially a reflection on the patient group that get it because it's generally speaking, as James said, elderly patients are immunocompromised. So mm-hmm. if, you, if you're, you're sort of pre-selecting because I imagine a lot of the cases of listeria are subclinical, never picked up, and we only diagnose it in people that are severely unwell with it. So... Um, I don't know if that's so much reflection on the organism itself um, and mm. more on the patient demographics in which we see it, but it'd be quite yeah. hard to, to get more detailed information. What about the lab ID, uh, Callum? How do you how does this thing present? Yeah, so it's a gram-positive bacilli, so you'll see that on the gram stain, although it can be gram-variable and doesn't form spores. It's beta-hemolytic, so if you're growing it on a, a blood egg or plates, then you'll see that clearing zone, and it'll grow in a aerobic or facultative the anaerobic uh, environment. The classic test that would come up in an exam historically would be something called tumbling motility. So this is quite fun to do in the lab. Um, Essentially, you set up a little droplet of water with some of your colony in it, and you suspend it on the other uh, upside down of a glass slide um, with some blue tacks to hold it up over another piece of glass uh, slide. And then you look at it under the microscope um, and you see these little uh, grandpas of bacilli tumbling and they're almost like umbrellas falling down through the sky and the interesting thing there is it moves it you can see movement at 30 degrees but not 37 it's quite a niche test 
kind of one more for the history books or anything else. As with most other organisms, the identification is through, uh, you can do an API or you could put it through the Molotov and you also quick biochemical tests. So it would be catalase positive and it'd also be oxidase positive, mm. which uh, is always a quite good quick test to do because it was oxidase negative. And then you're not doing it for the you need not to go and do other tests. Yeah. I mean, that, that tumbling motility, that's uh, been in every revision textbook I've ever read uh, for the part one. And it was also in our part one. Yeah. I don't know why. So, and it was just an absolute no-brainer question because the second you see the word tumbling motility, um, you could just say this thing is listeria um, and then move on. So, you know, the, the loyal listener might be wondering why. why. Why is it mobile at low temperatures but, but not at higher temperatures? Because that's how it normally replicates. It's in the environment and the environment is, is cold, colder than body temperature. And so it's, it retains this ability to move uh, at lower temperatures, typically it's, you say that it moves at 30, but not at 37. But actually, if you took the temperature down to five or four degrees, it'd still be moving as well. That's part of why it's able to replicate. Hmm. Callum, how do you kill listeria then? Yes, yeah, so listeria is generally sensitive to penicillin. So benzyl penicillin can be used and it is intrinsically resistant to cephalosporins. So they cannot ever be used. Interestingly, so we think about this most in the context of meningitis and high-risk patients, and uh, the British Infections Association guidance uh, suggests uses amoxicillin rather than benzyl penicillin, and you use this at a very high dose, uh, with the reason being that our empirical treatment for meningitis is keftraxone, which it's intrinsically resistant to. So it's an important part of the guidance. Everyone's very used to saying, oh, it might be meningitis. We'll give them keftraxone. We'll give them dexamethasone. We'll give, might give them acyclovir if you're worried about encephalitis. And we need to remember, is there a risk of uh, listeria? Are they meet these risk factors? In which case, we're going to give them two grams of IV amoxicillin every four hours. Um, other parts of treatment, so previous historical practice was to give synergistic gentamicin as indication, but more recent studies have basically debunked that and said it's not supported. Uh, you can rarely get the penicillin resistance, in which case mm. you could switch in vancomycin. However, it's not got great CSF penetrance, so we talk about that a lot of meningitis, where you've got the blood vein barrier and you have to get uh, drugs across it. Fine, fine. Um, the the other drug that you can use in in other circumstances is cotrimoxazole. That's sensitive to that as well. That'll be very commonly used if somebody is uh, penicillin allergic, mm. uh, for example. That's um, yeah, you have to use high doses. Common, so. But you have to, again, you have to use meaty doses. Think your PCP style dosing. Um, in terms of length of treatment for sepsis or septicemia, it would be a fortnight. For meningitis, it's three weeks, and for a brain abscess, it's about six weeks or until resolution of the abscess, really, if you're not operating on it. And that's all we've got to say about listeria, really. Yeah, I think we'll revisit it a bit when we do our future meningoencephalitis episode, which... Absolutely, because be. there's some nuances in the, uh, in the treatment if you're considering listeria. Uh, will I rattle through lactobacillus very quickly? It's a pathogen that's naturally found in the GI tract, but also the vagina, and is associated with dental abscesses because it can be in, in the mouth as well. It is a non-sporing, non-motile gram-positive bacillus uh, that usually grows in a microaerophilic uh, environment uh, and preferably a low pH environment. So if you think not much oxygen, low pH, 
that's your vagina and uh, your GI tract, really. As I say, usually when you are identifying it, you, you would be identifying it in a, a dental abscess. Uh, and there it might require treatment. If it does, you could use penicillin, you could use macrolides, you could use clindamycin. Usually it's vancomycin resistant, so you wouldn't use that. Yeah. And that's all I have to say on lactobacillus. Yep. The other thing to say about it, it's just out of interest more than anything else in terms of microbiology, is that the reason it's called lactobacillus is it produces lactic acid. And it's one of the reasons why the vagina is a low pH environment. And mm, so what yeah, you can yeah. often see is when that's disrupted, so say patients take antibiotics or so on, uh, sometimes you can end up with bacterial vaginosis with an imbalance and your rise in pH that's less acidic. I believe that's linked to potentially lack of uh, lactobacillus. So yeah, it can rarely be a pathogen, but most of the time it's actually part of your normal flora and it's a helpful thing to have. Mm, yeah. So lactobacillus is quite an indolent pathogen. And then the other gram-positive bacillus uh, to mention is Erysipelothrix ruseopathii. Uh, this is a BC that you find throughout the food chain on animals, so pigs, poultry, and, and fish and shellfish. They all can carry this pathogen. And so therefore, the kind of people that would be handling those animals, like farmers and fishermen and butchers and uh, vets and cooks, they're the ones that that may be uh, infected with this uh, uh, pathogen, which causes a very interesting skin condition called erysipeloid. So erysipelothrix calls erysipeloid. Dermnet's got a brilliant page on this with some really nice images. But essentially, it looks like a localized tender red area, plus or minus blisters, usually on the hands, usually on the, the sort of dorsum of the hand. They're not particularly raised. It's kind of diffuse. It almost looks like the start of cellulitis, but it doesn't really go beyond that. Like I say, Dermnet's got brilliant images on this and, and their page on it in general is quite, um, quite nice and quite quick to read as well. In terms of culturing the organism, which will very be very rarely done, usually mm. it's clinically diagnosed, you could culture it in uh, aerobic or facultative anaerobic uh, environments, and it's a non-sporing, non-motile gram-positive bacilli, but will easily lose its stain and is negative for catalase, oxidase, and indole. Uh, but in any case, should you want to kill this organism, you can use any beta-lactam, any macrolide, any tetracycline, and any quinolone. Uh, so it can be killed by all of those things. Its sole interesting fact, I would argue, is that it is intrinsically resistant to vancomycin. Mm. Unlike a lot of other gram-positive things uh, that we've mentioned. It's also resistant to gentin cotramoxazole, but hopefully you would be able to use one of the first four groups that we mentioned. So I've very quickly found a, a case report of a patient with a erysipelothrix uh, ruseopathiae bacteremia in an elderly patient. So um, I guess if you if you got it on a blood culture, and, and as with everything James is saying about when you when you get uh, organisms and you think uh, we dismiss them, so there's there's a bit of a clinical review that goes on first just to check you know could this be significant? So there's mm. some thought put into it, but generally speaking, yeah, it would be quite an unusual cause, but could cause a more generalized infection of sepsis and could cause uh, infective endocarditis, um, mm. but you know very unusual. Yeah. 
So, like I say, and that, that brings this small print podcast uh, to the end, except for Listeria, which is a pretty large print. Yeah. But uh, those are the, the remainder of the non-branching GPB. So we've talked about Bacillus species, Carinobacterium species, Listeria, Lactobacillus, and Erysipelothrix. Next time, we'll talk about Nocardia and Actinomyces. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, why don't you email us in at idiotspodcast at idiotspodcasting at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Jane. I've been Callum. See you then.